Thanks for being here today. Um, I'm curious, uh, how much power, how much power do you have to have to solve the problems of the world? I'm curious, how much power do you have to have to solve the problems of the world? We look at Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest person in the world. He's worth about $36 billion, yet the money he has can't solve the problems of the world. Uh, you think of the group of seven or the, the seven leaders who gather at the G7 summit every year. These are the most powerful people on the planet. They, they lead nations like Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, the United States. These, these seven leaders who lead the seven most powerful nations in the world get together. They've gone together 46 times to try to solve the, the economic policies and problems of the world, and yet they, they cannot fix the world's problems. We've put human beings in outer space. We, we've created jets that can fly you to the other side of the world in a matter of hours. We've, we've created technology that you could talk to somebody all over the world in a moment's notice. Yet with all of our technology and advancements, even the brightest and best haven't solved the world's problems. We've created medicines. We've created testing. We've created huge strides in understanding health, yet we haven't been able to solve the problems of health, the problems of sickness, the problem of death. How much power do you have to have to solve the problems of the world? Uh, there are many problems that we're facing in our lives. Uh, we, we often feel out of control. I wonder if I polled you all this morning, if you would say at some point this week I felt out of control. I, I know I felt out of control this week. We, we, we face problems, and often those problems, they, they feel impossible, don't they? Uh, I'm reminded of the great theologian Mary Poppins who once said, everything is possible, even the impossible. Now, if you want to argue with me that she's not a real person, uh, that's fine, okay? But if she was, you would actually think that she was reading Luke chapter 8. Because uh, in Luke chapter 8 this morning, we encounter Jesus, the one who has the power to solve the problems of the world. Not just some of the problems, but all of the problems, all of the problems. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already when Mike was reading that for us. You're going to want to leave it open in front of you to kind of follow along, uh, to keep looking down as we go along. And, and what we've seen in Luke's gospel so far as we've gone through this is we've seen that Jesus is the promised king. He's, he's the long-awaited king, and his kingdom will never end. We've just been singing about that even this morning. And last week we saw that the method of the kingdom's growing is through the sharing, through the sowing of the Word of God. It's through the preaching of God's Word. And this week and in the coming weeks, we are going to see four different miracles that Luke pairs together for us into one unit. And what he's doing is he's trying to show us how powerful Jesus is. These four miracles are showing the comprehensiveness of the power that Jesus has to put the world right. That's what they're doing. These miracles are more than just telling you about the identity of Jesus, although they're doing that. That they're actually showing you, they're signs that Jesus has the power to solve the world's problems. So we're going to look at these two different things. Jesus has the authority over chaos. That's what we see in the first story. In the second story, we see that Jesus has authority over demonic powers, over, over the, the evil darkness that we find in this world. So let, let's look at the first story here, that Jesus has authority over the chaos. Okay, we see this in verses 22 through 25. And we notice here right away that Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples in verse 22, and he says to them, let us go across 
to the other side of the lake. So Jesus is the reason why they're on this lake. And they set out, and as they sailed, Jesus falls asleep. He's asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and we're told they were filling with water, and they were in danger. All right, so the Sea of Galilee, if you did not know this, is situated about 700 feet below sea level, so below sea level, okay? And right next to it is a, is a mountain range, and so often cold air is going to shoot over that mountain range and hit the lake, and what happens is it creates these really quick, out-of-nowhere-seeming storms, and that's exactly what these disciples and Jesus find themselves in. It's a really bad one, obviously, because the boat, we're told, is being filled with water, and the disciples are told they're, they're, they're in great danger, right? Think about it. These are, these are seasoned fishermen, most of them, seasoned fishermen, and they're terrified. Right? They know what's going on. There's, there's no GPS, right? There's no phone, right? There's no Coast Guard. There's no helicopter, right? If the boat goes down, they're dead, right? They, they, they get this, okay? I mean, just try to, try to, try to put yourself here in this moment, I think about it. I know many of you have heard this story a lot in your life, but, but tra- you know, transfer yourself back into this moment. Think about this. I mean, just think of a, a, a crazy storm that you've recently gone through. I, it's not hard to probably think of one, right? Remember back when we had the fires and everyone was praying for God to send rain? He sent rain, didn't he? Right? Do you remember that night when he sent the rain, that crazy storm that hit everybody in Gresham was awake except for my two daughters. Somehow they slept through the whole thing. I have no idea how it's a spiritual gift, maybe, I don't know, but they, they, they were out. The rest of us were at the window watching as we're watching branches flying off the tree and so much water rushing down our street. You know, God answered that prayer, and it was, it was pretty chaotic. And I remember thinking in that moment, wow, this is awesome, this is amazing, but I'm not going to lie, okay? There was a little bit of fear, like it was difficult to go back to sleep, wasn't it? You know, like, what's going to, is a tree going to fall in our house? You know, just being in that place, and I cannot fathom something of that magnitude and power, right, and, and experiencing that, but being on a fisherman's boat in the ancient Near East. Right? This is not a pleasant place to be. And as the storm rages, Jesus is fast asleep. Think about that. He's like my daughters, right? As followers of Jesus, we, we want to be like him, Right? But this is definitely one area where I want to be more like Jesus, sleeping well in the midst of chaos. I would, I would love this in my life. But that's where Jesus is. They run to Jesus. They wake him up. He stands up, potentially, you know, maybe yawns a bit. Who knows? Maybe stretches to the sky. We don't know. We're just told that he awoke. And, and, and he doesn't just speak. No, does he? What does it say that he does? It says he what? Rebukes the wind and the raging waves in verse 24. Do you see that? Right? This is the same word that we find being used of Jesus when he exercises demons. He rebukes the raging wind and the waves. He simply speaks. Right? Don't, don't lose the awe of this. Don't lose the awe of this. Creation obeys Jesus. Right? He doesn't need to call upon a higher power He doesn't need to, you know, do some sort of incantations. No, we're told the wind and the waves become still all at once. That's what this is actually communicating to you. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased just at once. This isn't the wind stopped, and it took a while for the waves to calm down like you would expect. No, the waves stopped, just ceased, right, at once. I mean, my words do nothing. I'm sure you feel the same way. If 
I say go to bed, that means nothing, right? I have no power over anything. When I say it doesn't matter, right? Nothing happens. My words do nothing. Jesus speaks and waves just become crystal clear, right? Become like glass. Jesus' words change the patterns of weather in a moment. This is supposed to remind you of Genesis chapter 1, right, where God speaks, things obey. Here Jesus is doing what Scripture says only God can do. You might think of Psalm 65 that says, it's God that stills the roaring of the sea, or Psalm 107 that says, God stills the storm to a whisper. Jesus does what only God can do. But notice what happens next. Look down in verse 25. He goes from rebuking the wind and the waves to doing what? Essentially rebuking the disciples. And what does he say? Because where is your faith? Where is your faith? This doesn't mean that their faith was, you know, at zero or something. You know, it means that they weren't exercising the faith that they had. And essentially it's a question like, where did it go? Right, where did it go? He asked the question because it would seem that they failed to recognize who it was that was actually in their boat. They obviously know Jesus is there, right? They know He's there. They went and woke Him, right? They they know He's there, but but they also know Jesus is not a fisherman. He's not some great famous sea captain or something like that. They don't know who Jesus really is. Well, who is He? Well, He's… we just saw He's God, right? This is not a debate. He's God in the flesh. This is God Himself on the stage. Jesus says, you should have trusted me. You're you're with me. This text not only helps us to see that that Jesus is Lord over the storm, you guys, but he's he's the Lord in the storm, isn't he? he? He's the one who allows storms in his people's lives, and he brings his people through those storms. This was his idea to go on the lake, wasn't it? I mean, if Jesus can calm the weather, couldn't He have known the weather forecast? Couldn't He have known that? Couldn't He have known that the storm was coming? Well, yeah, He could have. Right? Couldn't He have just said, hey, guys, no storms today. I'm going to go take a nap. Everything would have been fine. Couldn't He have done that? You think so? That's not what He wanted to do. So where does that leave us? Right? It's clear He knew the storm was coming, and instead of preventing this, He leads His disciples right into the storm. But instead of doing this, he takes his disciples into it, right, instead of stopping it. Why? Is he cruel? Right? Does he not love his disciples? Is he mad at them? No, Jesus takes them right into the storm so that they would know more of him, right? So that they would see that he certainly does care for them in the midst of that chaos. So that they could see his power spent on their behalf, so they could have faith in Him, so they would trust Him. He takes them into the storm so that their faith might grow. I think many people have, have read this story and thought that this, this is meant to teach us that God will protect you from the problems and difficulties of this life, right? That, that whatever storms you're going through, Jesus is going to bring peace to that storm right now if you would just have faith in Him but that fails to understand the significance of what's going on here. There's something really significant here, especially in the Bible, about the sea, right? God's people being saved through water is a very common story throughout the Bible. You see that in the book, you see that in the story of Noah, right? That God brings about this flood on the earth, but God saves His person and His person's family, right? Noah, through that water of judgment. 
We, we see God deliver His people out of slavery in Egypt, and, and as their enemies are chasing them down to re-enslave them, what happens? God saves them through the water of the Red Sea, and that water falls on their enemies and judges them. We, this story is retold over and over again. We see in places like Isaiah 43, uh, a retelling of this story from Egypt. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, right? And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. As we read these stories, like the one here on the sea, we, let's be honest, we read it through a post-enlightenment worldview. So the way that we view weather and creation is very much through this like sort of cause and effect, uh, that's it, sort of idea, right? So it's all random, right? But that, that's not the case. That's not how the Jews would have read a story like this, especially as it relates to the weather. Uh, this is a really important. This is really important, okay? Uh, R.C. Sproul, in his book, Surprised by Suffering, R.C. Sproul's book, Surprised by Suffering, notes something very helpful about the biblical image of the sea and how the Jews would have understood this story. He points out, he, he looks ahead in the Bible to the end of Revelation when you see the new heavens and the new earth, and you'll notice something really peculiar at the end of your Bible. What does it say about heaven? It says in verse, 20, or verse 1 of, of chapter 21, there was no more sea. In heaven, there's no more sea. I'm sorry if you like the beach, right? Heaven's going to be horrible for you, right? Is that what you're supposed to think? Well, no, not at all, okay? In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for that which was ominous, sinister, and threatening. So it kind of encapsulated all of these elements of life and how the Jewish people thought of the sea. That's what R.C. Sproul says. And he goes on to describe why this is the case. He talks about how their enemies often came from the sea. You think of the Philistines. But overall, the sea represented trouble to them. Even in Revelation, you see the beast coming up out of the sea. So the Jewish year, the chaos of this storm encapsulated the chaos and the storms of life. So, so this not only points to Jesus' identity, but it's pointing to how Jesus is going to use His divine power for His people. Guys, this story, it's not promising you deliverance from life's problems. I'm sorry. But it's promising you a deliverance from this life of problems. It's not a deliverance from your problems. It's, it's a deliverance from life itself. Right? It's a deliverance that promises that, that Jesus will bring his people safely into the kingdom. Right? Guys, this, this reality is that, that all of us in life, you're going to face situations, you're going to face devastating storms, aren't you? Right? We're, we're, we're overwhelmed. We feel completely out of control. And I'm sure you can think of some things in your life right now that would check that box. We, we must understand that the message of Christianity is not a storm-free life. Christians are going to be persecuted, right? Christians are going to die. Christians are going to get sick. They're going to experience grief. They're going to experience hardship. God doesn't promise that if you come to Jesus and believe in Him, that you will get your best life right now. But we are promised that we have a Savior and He is with us in those storms and through those storms. It's that Jesus is able to deliver His people ultimately from death and bring them safely into His kingdom, right? Into His new creation someday. But today we have storms, right? And storms are difficult and painful and they sometimes fill us with great fear. 
And I wonder today if you're in the midst of a storm like that. The, the, the circumstances of your life are, are overwhelming to you. Right? The storm is devastating you. You see the water heaping over the side of your metaphorical boat in life, and you're wondering how in the world you're going to get through this, how you're going to get out the other side. You're wondering where is God? Is He sleeping? Right? You throw up your hands, you know? You, you just, does He even care? We, we see the disciples doing the same thing. They're saying, Master, we are perishing. The message is essentially, Jesus, do you see what's happening to us? Do you care? These are the questions we often wonder when we're suffering, when we're in those storms, right? Does God see? Does God care? Right? Maybe you're asking those questions this morning. I think it's appropriate to ask those questions. But let the questions drive you towards Jesus and not away from Him. Right? Do you recognize who's in your boat? Right? Uh, I, this made me think for some of this week of how I love holding my kids' hands, especially my little girl Isla's hands. Her little three-year-old hands are the cutest things in the world, right? You hold them and you're like, I gotta be careful not to crush this thing, you know? But it's amazing, when she's scared, she will grab my hand, I don't even have to ask her. But sometimes she's in danger and she doesn't know it, but I'm gonna hold on to her hand and I'm not gonna let go of it even if I have to crush that thing, right? I, I'm going to protect her. I'm gonna make sure that, that whatever it is that could happen to her that might actually ruin her or something will not happen. Right? We get that image. It's a similar image here that Jesus is in our boat. He's the one who's got you by the hand. He's gonna deliver you through. He's gonna deliver you through. So the disciples, they're terrified of the storm and then they turn after they hear Jesus rebuke and they're afraid again. But what are they afraid of? Well, their question tells us what they fear. What does it say? They say what? Who then is this? Who's this? Right? Their fear moves from their circumstances to an amazement-like fear of the man they just woke up, the man they thought didn't care, maybe. Right? The one with true authority, the one who creation bows to, they fear him. I, I, I think this is so often how our fear works, isn't it? I mean, just right now, I want you to write down or, or, or at minimum, just think in your mind, what are your greatest fears in life? What are they? And you can't say heights right now. I mean, you could, you could be afraid of heights, that's fine, okay? But, but unless you're working amongst, you know, the, the many skyscrapers of Gresham or something, you know, you can't write that down. Okay, so what are your, what are your greatest fears? Like, like, lock in on those, what are they? What are you afraid of? But then after you've nailed it down, ask yourself, where is God in that fear? Where is he? Is he out of sight, out of mind, meaning you're so focused on your circumstances that you fail to realize who's in the boat with you, who's got you by the hand? Right, the response to the disciples is it's a great reversal of this fear, right? Is there anything you fear today that needs to be redirected towards fear of God? Is there anything? Because their newfound fear causes them to say, who then is this? Right, they can't quite say he must be God if he can do that. They're expecting God in the flesh and that's exactly who's in their boat. This, this, is already, this is the second time this has come up. In Luke chapter 5, we saw Jesus heal a paralytic man, say your sins are forgiven, and people go, who then is this? He can even forgive sins. Well, now they're going, who then is this? Right? We can be sure that these disciples would never look at a storm the same way again. Right? I wouldn't. God grows and matures His children through the storms. So can Jesus deliver us from the chaos? Well, the answer is clearly Yes. He's the God over the storm. But we also see in the second story here that he's also the God in the storm, right? He's the God of the storm. If you look at verses 26 and following, 
what we see here in verse 22, actually, is again that Jesus wanted them to go to the other side of the lake. Well, in verse 26, they finally arrive. And Jesus is the only one to do, uh, and Jesus is, is only going to do one thing before He heads back to the other side of the lake where the crowds are going to rejoin Him again. We'll see that in a couple weeks. But it's almost like He has one item on the agenda list, you know, and it's to meet this guy. It's to meet this guy. We know that He's in uh, Gentile territory. Jewish people didn't live over here. He's in the Decapolis, right? There's the Sea of Galilee on the opposite side of, of where all the Jewish people often lived was the Decapolis, that's where he is. And we know this is Gentile territory because there's herdsmen of pigs, right? And Jewish people thought pigs were unclean. You wouldn't be farming pigs, raising them. What are you going to do with them, right? You're not going to eat them, right? So these are definitely not Jewish people in the region that he's in. And this is actually the only time that Jesus distinctively ministers in Jewish territory in his whole ministry. And it's just with this one guy. It's amazing. What does he encounter? He steps out on the land and he encounters a man. What's his name? no idea. He's just called the man. Love that. Just the man, right? And this guy was enduring a never-ending internal storm, you could say. And he's overcome by these demons. I have to, I have to kind of do an aside here just for a second because uh, I think we, we struggle with this, right? I think we look at these stories and we don't commonly see this kind of stuff that Mike read for us. You know, thousands of demons being cast out of people, that kind of thing. We feel like this is some crazy old story, but this is real. And we must realize that in modern Western society, the demonic is not on our radar. It sounds strange. It sounds distant to us. Many people might look, and look back and think, well, these people uh, weren't really demons. They weren't really possessed by demons. Maybe they were just some physical or psychological ailment that these people were going through and they didn't know what was going on, so they're like, oh, you're possessed by demons. People will often look at a passage like this and say that. Maybe you're even thinking those kinds of things as you look at a passage like this. But, but I think we really need to be careful in looking back with that sort of arrogance. For one, we know that Luke was a physician. And we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke that there was many times where people had diseases and he called them diseases. And they were healed from those diseases and he didn't say they were liberated from demons. So Luke clearly understands the difference between disease and demonic sort of possession. Hey, I don't think we want to look back with that kind of arrogance. But maybe you're skeptical when it comes to the realities of Satan or demons. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his preface to his book, Screwtape Letters. It's a really famous book about the fictional account of sort of demons and how they interact in the world. And he says this, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. He says one is to disbelieve in their existence, that's one error. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, right? So they themselves, where he's talking about demons, right, they are equally pleased by both errors, right? One hails the materialist and one hails the magician. That's what he says. And I think often as Christians, we can fall in one extreme or another. We see a demon under every rock. We see a demon behind every corner. You know, I've heard people say before, you know, when their car breaks down, there's a demon in their car, you know, and sometimes you go... I don't know, man, maybe it just has 300,000 miles on it, you know, and you just need a new car, you know. Could be that. I don't know, maybe. Right? Maybe, it's, maybe it's just old. But there's also an unhealthy view that find, there's that unhealthy view that finds a demon in everything. But also there's Christians who want to rationalize away everything, right? And we, we just sort of turn a blind eye to any, like this world has any sort of satanic or demonic forces and realms within them, Right? This is the more common belief, I believe, where we live, but we must not fall into one extreme or another. 
You guys, we need to read Scripture and let it inform our world. We don't want to read our world and let it inform Scripture. And I feel that's what we're doing when we fall on either side. Okay, so look at the effect this demon has on this guy. He is what? He's dehumanized. We see this in verses 27 and following. Do you notice? He's naked, and we're told he's been naked for a long time. He didn't live in a house like you. Where does he live? He lives amongst the tombs. Don't miss this. His friends are dead people. He's alone. Right? He was a violent man, it would seem. He's chained up like a dog, and the chains can't even hold him back with the strength that he has. What a horrible and helpless life. When the man sees Jesus, he falls down before him, and we quickly learn that the demons that possess him know very well the answer to the question that the disciples ask in verse 25. Who then is this? The demons know. Who is he? He's the son of the Most High God. Right? That the demons know. Jesus asks for this guy's name. He doesn't ask for his sake. Jesus, I'm guessing, knows all these things. He's asking for your sake and my sake. He wants us to know the full extent of this problem. The name given is actually not a name, because when Jesus asks his name, the demons say, Legion, which a legion was a, Ro- a Roman army, and it would refer to thousands of soldiers. Right, so, so can Jesus take on a legion of demons? That's the question right here. Can he take on thousands? He's delivered Mary Magdalene of, of a handful, but thousands? Can he do this? Is he able to take on that much power over evil, one against thousands? Guys, it's no contest, is it? The demons have to obey him. Look at them. They recognize his authority, and the demons that have destroyed this man's life are begging Jesus to leave them alone. They're in a posture of begging. All they can do is beg. Guys, in verse 28, you see that. What this is showing us is that Jesus has the power and has come to bring an end to demons altogether. That's why we see a reference to the abyss here. Right, the abyss is the home of the dead. This literally means the deep. In the Old Testament, Jewish people thought it was at the bottom of the sea, which we just talked about the sea, so go figure, right? Where else would it be? Right, the bottom of the sea. They're destined for that sort of judgment. They beg Jesus to delay that judgment, and what does Jesus do? He sends the unclean spirits to enter a herd of pigs on the hillside. Unclean spirits going into unclean animals, and the pigs run into the sea and they drown. Right, they, they beg not to go to the abyss, but essentially that's kind of where they end up, right? This is pointing towards their ultimate end. This is foreshadowing where they're going to end up. Right, this story is such an incredible story. We have, a, we have a lot of questions, don't we? We have a lot of questions to this story. Why the pigs? What really happened? Is it okay for Jesus to send them into pigs? And if he knew they're going to run down and drown, like isn't that kind of mean to the, the farmers that this would be their livelihood? You know, that kind of thing. And honestly, we don't know the answers to those questions. I wish I had them. We can have some really interesting conversations, though. We can speculate, but we don't know, right? But it is showing us two clear realities. Firstly, it's showing us that there is a real dark spiritual realm. If you think life is just flesh and blood, skin and bones, probability and chance, science and reason, if it's just that, okay, then then, then we're not seeing clearly, right? It's not helpful. If you don't see the whole picture, you can't understand the whole problem. How how are you going to find the real solution? 
Well, there's a real world and there's a battle going on in the world and it's not a flesh and blood. There's a real dark spiritual realm and the herdsmen saw it with their own eyes. And so what do they do in verse 34? They run into the city and they tell everybody what just happened. See that? They're like, guys, you're not gonna believe what just happened. You have to come out and see this. And the people begin to come out and see what has just gone on and they come out and they see this man who no doubt they knew who he was, they avoided him, and now they see him and he is completely different, right? Look, he's dressed and he's in his right mind. Where is he found? He's at the feet of Jesus, which is Luke's favorite way of, of, of showing what disciples do with Jesus. They're at his feet. That's where he is. Right? The man is found in the typical place where a disciple would be. He's clothed. He's always been naked. Right? He, he was always roaming around, unable to be chained down. What is he doing now? Seated on his own. Now he's associating with people when previously he'd only hung out with the dead. Right? Now he's in his right mind when previously he was always crying out with a loud voice. Now he wants to go with Jesus when just a moment ago he wanted to avoid Jesus altogether. This is showing you the second clear reality that not only is the dark spiritual realm real, Guys, we see here that Jesus is not a philosopher or teacher. He is God over that realm. He doesn't just shave the guy. He doesn't just give him some ibuprofen. He doesn't just refer him to a counselor. He doesn't just put some glasses on his face. He doesn't just buy him some fresh clothes. He heals him. He cures him. Literally, verse 36, it says he saves him. That's salvation. That's deliverance. He saves him. He is helpless. He's oppressed. We're like, we don't even know what to do with this guy. Let's just leave him out there and chain him up. He can't even fix his own situation. But today the man met Jesus. Guys, this miracle is not only about exorcism, it's especially about the liberation of the soul. Can Jesus deliver us from the darkness? Oh, clearly, yes. This is showing the wholeness of salvation that Jesus brings. Those who have been dehumanized by demonic forces are brought back into wholeness that God intends for them. We could, we could say that this man's situation is more extreme than all of our conditions. You could say that. But this, this man was in bondage, and, and all of us are in bondage too. And that's how the Bible actually talks about your state apart from Christ. We don't usually see possession like this, but everyone who is an unbeliever is blinded by evil. If you flip in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, you've probably read the famous place where Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? Following the course of this world, doing what else? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, He's talking about your, your saved or your lack of being saved dead state apart from Christ. Right? We all apart from Christ, we are held in bondage to our sin. Right? We, we are held in bondage to the prince of the power of the air. You might not look like this guy, but that's your reality apart from Christ. It makes you think of, of, of someone having cancer. Sometimes you meet someone who has cancer and it's clear by their appearance, your heart just breaks for them, it goes out to them like, yeah, I'm so heartbroken over your cancer. It's taking a toll on you, you could see it. But then sometimes you meet people who have cancer and you, you can't tell yet, right? That's not as evident yet. And in a very similar way, in a very similar way, that's what we have here. 
We are in bondage to sin, all of us. Our lives are devastated in an ongoing way, devastated by our ongoing struggle and rebellion against God. So, so if we think this man's bondage looked horrific before he met Christ, how about we consider Jesus the man who's speaking into this man's life? Jesus was the one who allowed himself to be bound, was it not? Jesus allowed himself to be beaten, did he not? Jesus allowed himself to be stripped, did he not? He allowed himself to even be crucified on a cross, did he not? As a sacrifice for sinners who were in bondage to their sin so that we could be set free, that we could be liberated from the chains that we've known our entire lives. That's why Ephesians 2 continues and it says what? But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he's loved us, united us with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What changed this man's life? Jesus got off the boat and stepped on shore and met him. What could change your life? Same thing. Friends, this is our greatest problem, our bondage. But we also have great provision in our Savior. Jesus came to set us free and on this new course to completely transform our lives. And I wonder if you've encountered Jesus in that way. Well, how do you respond to something like this? We see two responses here. The herdsmen go and tell, the people come and see, verse 35, and they're afraid. Notice that? Why are they afraid? Because they see this man who was once tortured and uncontrolled, lost in the inner storm of the demonic possession, and what is he now? He's at inner peace. Have you ever been freaked out by that kind of transformation? They recognize this guy, and they see the transformation, and that strikes them with fear. And in their fear, verse 37, what does it say? The people reject Jesus. You see this in the text. They ask Jesus to leave. They say, go away, please leave. What a devastating choice. With all the evidence before them, these people proceed to reject the greatest opportunity of their lives. Right? Instead of welcoming Jesus, the liberator, they ask him to leave. So what does he do in verse 37? He says, he left. He got in the boat and he left. We don't know why they rejected Jesus. We could speculate. We don't know. We could speculate, as many have, that, that, that maybe they cared more about their material you know, prosperity than they did about Jesus or something. Or maybe they just were like, you know what, this is, they were superstitious. They're like, this is kind of weird. I just don't need more drama in my life. We have no idea. We have no idea. All we know is that they reject Jesus. They ask him to leave, but we also know that one person did it. The one person wasn't afraid. Instead, he said, I want to go with Jesus. Who was that? The man who had been possessed by thousands of demons, who had this horrific internal storm, but now was at peace. But surprisingly, instead of allowing the man to go with him, Jesus gave the man a mission. Do you see it? What was his mission? Look in verse 39. It says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. I mean, just notice even that subtle phrase. He says, what God has done for you. Well, we clearly saw Jesus did this for him, right? So again, pointing to the divinity and the divine power of Jesus. Go and tell people what, what God has done for you. Guys, Jesus is sending this man as the first missionary to the Gentile world. And anyone who will listen... He's going to tell. Notice that? 
He's proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is not just the mission for this man, though, is it? It's for us, too. It's to go and tell. It's to say, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. We go and tell. We, we are to tell those nearest to us, just like this guy went home. We're to go and tell those nearest to us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, maybe. Right? Sometimes that, that's the hardest part for us, though, right? Because those people know us at our worst. But these people knew this guy at his worst, didn't they? Right? They've seen him there. So the question for us as Christians is, do you tell? Do you tell? Right? Do, you, do you tell them what God has done for you, or do you, do you do all you can to avoid it? Do you try to dance around it? Right? Friends, we are living in a city with thousands and thousands and thousands of people right, who are living in the midst of great storms. And they have no idea that there's a Savior. That there's somebody with the power to solve the problems of the whole world, even theirs. Right? Who will tell them? Who will go and tell them? Who's going to tell your neighbor? Who's going to tell your family member? Who's going to tell your friend? Who's going to tell your coworker? Who's going to tell them? Right? Not what you've done for God, but what God's done for you. Right? We just have to be a genuine person then, don't we? We have to come to the feet of Jesus, experience His liberation, and just be honest. Right? That's, that's literally all we have to be is honest people, genuine people. And this is honestly the most natural thing in the world to ever do. I love um, C.S. Lewis when he talks about in his short essay, A Word About Praising. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. We get that. When you've experienced something glorious, when you've enjoyed something like a liberated salvation, when you've enjoyed anything in life, the most natural thing you're going to want to go do is what? Go praise, go tell, go throughout the whole city, aren't you? That's why I love sports, and I love watching those game-winning shots, the, the final, you know, touchdown at the, the last second, you know, the home run, walk-off home run thing. But every time I watch the slow-motion replay, you want to know what I'm watching? This is pre-COVID, but you know what I'm watching? I'm watching the crowd. Do you ever do that? Are you with me? I, my eyes are locked on the crowd. Why? Because I love watching the moment when everybody, when everybody understands what they just saw. And what are they doing? Their hands are going up. Their mouths are opening, Right? They're going to praise what they just saw, what they just experienced, aren't they? The owner could put up signs all over the stadium saying, no matter what you see today, no matter what you experience, you're not allowed to say a word, you're not allowed to cheer once. If you do, you'll be kicked out here for life, right? Every person that moment's going to go, for whatever, I'm not coming back, right? I'm going to praise what I just saw, right? This is what we do in life, right? C.S. Lewis was right. What this man does is the most normal thing in the world. You going and telling what God's done for you is the most natural thing on the planet, Right? And as we go and tell what God has done for us, we can be confident that Jesus has the power to deliver anyone, to rescue anyone from their darkness, even you. We go and tell. Um, I don't know if you guys ever been downtown to the Portland Outdoor Store. Anybody ever been there before? Nobody? You have? Somebody? A couple people? Yeah. Uh, a couple years ago, me and Elizabeth were downtown shopping for, like, outdoor gear, 
and we were striking out, you know, like REI kind of stuff, you know, I don't know, hiking things, whatever it is, you know. And we were striking out, so we're like looking up things on Google, and we find the Portland Outdoor Store. It's you know, been around for like 100 years or something. We're like, oh, it's perfect. Let's go there. Well, if you've never been there, we walked in, and we were immediately surprised by what we saw. Because it wasn't Portland Outdoor Store 2020. It was Portland Outdoor Store like 2010, right? All you could find are like saddles and cowboy boots and cowboy hats and all this gear that I imagine was like for necessary life, you know, 100 years ago. But now we walked in and we're like, oh, immediately, like, this is not what I thought I was going to find, right? This is not at all what I thought I was going to find, but because of my personality, I was like, all right, I'm just going to walk around for a while acting like I meant to be here. Maybe there's something here that I can find. And as the people come up and say, hey, can we help you find anything? We're going, oh, no, 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 we're just browsing. We're just browsing. But the whole time, I'm like, I cannot wait to get out of here, right? Like, I, there's nothing here that I'm looking for. Right? When you walk through the doors of Luke, we are confronted with Jesus. And I'm curious if this was the Jesus you were hoping to find. We don't find him here as a humble savior, although he is. And we don't find him here as a really good teacher, although he was the best. We, we find him here in all of his divine authority. Did you get into these pages and you're like, yeah, I meant to be here, and you're just kind of quickly hoping to leave them to find the Jesus that you were looking for? I'm curious, if you feel out of control this morning, if you feel out of control this morning, you're in the right store, right? I mean, how much power do you have to have to solve the problems of the world? Here it is. Jesus has it. And so if you feel out of control, if you feel helpless, if you feel hopeless, Jesus has the power to change the problems of the world, even yours. He's got you by the hand. He's in the boat and he's gonna bring you through the evil and the storms of life into the new creation. They all have expiration dates, but Jesus doesn't, and neither does his kingdom. He has the power to bring you into the kingdom, and he has the power to bring anybody out of bondage to Satan. He is God. No wonder he has the power to put things right. So let's trust him. Let's do it. Father, this morning, I pray that you would so uh, illuminate our lives uh, to our fear, to the things and places where we feel out of control, and God, help us to see you in the midst of those places. Uh, Lord, if we're feeling hopeless and helpless today, no matter what situation we're in, especially uh, if we feel in bondage to our sin, I pray that you would come and you'd be the great liberator this morning in our lives. God, that you would set people free, and Lord, that we as your people would sit at your feet and go and tell, God, would you please um, create in us this heart. God, would we be people who experience your deliverance and just can't be quiet about it. And you're the one with all power, all glory, all praise, and I pray that we would give you that rightful praise in our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.